This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor is circling the political wagons around the thin blue line. Ron DeSantis is proposing a new law to crack down on protesters and stand with police. It would also provide new legal protections for Confederate statues. Uh, also, we have a prohibition on destroying or toppling any type of public property, including monuments. Uh, that's not the way uh, to go about it, and we will hold you accountable. DeSantis calls it the Combating Violence, Disorder and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act, and it does nothing to address police violence against black Americans that inspired those protests in the first place. While the governor talked law and order in Winter Haven, First Lady Casey DeSantis was back home at the governor's mansion, hosting a roundtable discussion on mental health issues faced by children who are back in the classroom during a pandemic. While the virus is important, we cannot turn a blind eye nor ignore the problems facing our children, whether directly, indirectly, or not related to the virus at all. Uh, we knew mental wellness was something that we needed to prioritize before the pandemic. This has just made it even more important. You'll hear more from the First Lady later in the podcast on the Sunrise Soapbox. The Florida Cabinet meets today, but COVID-19 is nowhere to be found on the agenda. So Cabinet member and Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed held an alternative meeting to talk about the issue. She calls it the Florida Cupboard Meeting. If your Cabinet refuses to provide you with these updates, then I'm going to bring these updates to you. If the Cabinet's closed, we're going to open the cupboard. Speaking of COVID-19, the State Department of Health reports 1,685 new cases, 21 new fatalities. We'll also have your calendar of events and check in with a Florida woman facing up to 10 years in jail for spreading COVID-19 in my old stomping grounds, Bavaria. And now the top stories on Sunrise for September 22nd, which just happens to be National Elephant Appreciation Day. As America grapples with the Black Lives Matter movement and the issue of police violence against civilians, Governor Ron DeSantis says he's standing with the cops. He's urging the legislature to pass a new law cracking down on protesters and on any local governments that try to shift resources from the police to mental health or social services. We have seen attacks on law enforcement. We've seen disorder and tumult in many cities uh, across the, the country. You all have situations where buildings will be in flames and on TV, even though sometimes the news will say it's peaceful, you see the, you see the flames behind there. And I think that this has been a really, really sad chapter um, in American history. Now in Florida, when we started to see uh, some of the disorder, we immediately moved to mobilize the National Guard. We had uh, Florida Highway Patrol, uh, quick response teams ready to go, sent them to the various communities um, who needed the support, whether it was in Central Florida or Southern Florida. Uh, and we had law enforcement uh, officers all throughout the state uh, who were intent on keeping the people safe, keeping people's businesses secure. Uh, and I think that they did a great job and you didn't see the type of disorder here in the state of Florida that you did uh, throughout many other parts of the country. At the same time, I think we need to do more in terms of having a strong legislative response so that we do not always have to play whack-a-mole anytime you have situations like this develop. And so I'm proud today to be able to announce what will be a focal point of the next legislative session, um, a, a, a legislative proposal which we're calling the Combating Violence, Disorder and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act uh, that will probably be the boldest and most comprehensive piece of legislation to address these issues 
anywhere in the country. And there's a number of things that we'll be doing. Uh, you know, we are going to impose criminal penalties for violent or disorderly assemblies, uh, and that'll be a third-degree felony. Uh, we will also uh, require uh, a felony if you uh, incapacitate any of the roadways. We see people take over interstates. Uh, that is absolutely hazardous. It's not fair to motorists who may get caught up in that, um, and so that will be unacceptable. Uh, also, we have a prohibition on destroying or toppling any type of public property, including monuments. Uh, that's not the way uh, to go about it, and we will hold you accountable. Also have a prohibition on harassing innocent people in public accommodations. You see these videos of these innocent people eating dinner, and you have these crazed lunatics just screaming at them and intimidating them um, on, on a public accommodation, you're not going to do that here in the state of Florida. And we're also going to use RICO liability to anyone who organizes or funds a violent or disorderly assembly. And if you look at some of the people who've been involved in this violence, these are people that will come from all across the, world, all across the country. If there's any type of issue, they all of a sudden show up in all these places. Uh, we're going to figure out who's organizing and who's funding that and hold them accountable. Uh, but what you have to have is clear and predictable penalties. I look at what goes on in Portland, and they'll have people. They'll arrest them. These are all scraggly-looking, you know, Antifa types. They get their mugshot taken, and then they get released. And it's like a carousel. On and on it goes. Uh, that's not going to happen here in Florida. If you are involved in a violent or disorderly assembly, assembly and you harm somebody, if you throw a brick and hit a police officer, you're going to jail. And there's going to be a mandatory minimum jail sentence of at least six months for anyone who strikes a police officer, either uh, with, with uh, any a weapon or a projectile. And we're also not going to simply let people back out onto the street. So if you are in custody for one of these offenses relating to a violent or disorderly assembly, uh, you're not getting bail before your first appearance. And then there's a rebuttable presumption against bail after that. We also have offense enhancements. And so if you do throw an object during a violent or disorderly assembly, uh, that will be an enhanced penalty, uh, as well as assault or battery of a law enforcement officer during one of these violent or disorderly assemblies. And if you are from another state and you come to participate in one of these violent or disorderly assemblies, uh, you're going to have extra penalties imposed on you as well. Uh, but that's not enough. We have to understand that there's more that needs to be done. So we have a number of initiatives designed to protect citizens and taxpayers. One, we are not going to permit localities to defund the police. If you defund the police, then the state is going to defund any grant or aids coming to you. And that applies to any municipality uh, or local government throughout the state of Florida. By announcing this before the election, DeSantis is following Donald Trump's lead, trying to shift the conversation from COVID-19 to law and order. But I think it's important that every single person running for office in the state of Florida this year, whether you're running for the House, whether you're running for the Senate, you have an obligation to let, your, let the voters know where you stand on this bill. Are you going to stand with victims? Are you going to stand with law enforcement? Are you going to stand with law and order and safe communities? Or are you going to stand with the mob? The governor's proposal does nothing to address the reasons why so many people are protesting, namely the killing of black Americans by law enforcement officers. And honestly, giving more legal protection to Confederate statues just sort of rubs salt in that wound.
Senate Democratic leader Audrey Gibson of Jacksonville calls it political fear-mongering, saying, quote, the governor is attaching himself to Donald Trump's propaganda and manufacturing a non-existent law and order crisis in Florida. Senator Bobby Powell of Palm Beach County says the governor's plan has nothing to do with safeguarding the right of peaceful protest. He calls it a government sledgehammer to permanently silence opposing voices. And Senator Perry Thurston of Broward says it's the latest in a long line of efforts to quash the people's ability to demand change when the government refuses to listen. The governor and cabinet meet today for the first time in months, but COVID-19 is not on their agenda. So Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed convened her own panel of experts for an alternative meeting. She calls it the Florida Cupboard Meeting. In the past six months, 13,286 Floridians have passed away from the coronavirus with over 681,000 positive cases in our state. I want to stop for a second to express my deep, heartfelt empathy for every single Floridian touched by this pandemic. Beyond the devastating healthcare implications, this virus has been detrimental to so many aspects of our society. Unemployment is at record levels in Florida. Schools are either closed or quarantined. Food insecurity and chronic hunger are reaching new heights, and we're staring at a $5 billion hole in our budget. Meanwhile, with an enormous election just 43 days away, we're facing serious questions about the integrity of Florida's election system, and our government continues erecting roadblocks to people's constitutional rights to vote. Every four years, you, the people of Florida elect four of us to serve on your Florida cabinet, the governor, the attorney general, chief financial officer, and commissioner of agriculture. Meetings of the Florida cabinet are supposed to be opportunities for Floridians to watch their leaders make significant decisions together with transparency and a spirit of collaboration. Unfortunately, that has not been the case since 2019 but especially since this pandemic began. Since March 2nd, I've asked for regular cabinet meetings to update on us on COVID-19 response, revenue projections, our unemployment system, clemency, and more. But if your cabinet fails to put these issues on the agenda, if your cabinet refuses to provide you with these updates, then I'm going to bring these updates to you. If the cabinet's closed, we're gonna open the cupboard. Since taking office last year, I have always sought to put state before party, to be a team player and to support my fellow cabinet members, including the governor. But when the Florida cabinet convenes for the first time in months, none of those issues you heard today will be on the agenda. And when the clemency board meets Wednesday, only a handful of Floridians will get back their constitutional rights to vote. But when the body in which we serve, the Florida cabinet that you elect, doesn't provide information and leave state businesses pending for months, while canceling meeting after meeting, I have to step up and lead. This isn't hypothetical. People are asking how their government is addressing COVID-19 how we plan to help feed hungry families, how we will be dealing with a budget deficit, and how we will conduct safe elections while ensuring the, sac the sacred right to vote. 
It is our job as constitutional officers to give the people answers. And if the cabinet can't and the governor won't, then I will. So I wanna end today by thanking Floridians for all you have done to beat COVID-19 in our communities. And I'll remind you that we have to be in this together. This pandemic isn't a hoax, it isn't the flu, and it isn't over. One of the experts accompanying Freed was Rebecca Jones, the data expert and whistleblower who was fired by the governor and the Department of Health after she accused them of trying to hide coronavirus information from the public. Jones says it is still happening. Cases are trending upward for every single age group in the state, especially those who are under the age of 35. We've seen an astronomical increase in pediatric cases. We've seen additional pediatric deaths, which the state has not been transparent about. Um, and what's going on right now with schools is really unprecedented. We shut down all school activities, all youth activities, when there were only several hundred cases in the state. Now we've topped more than 600,000 cases in the state, and we're reopening nearly every single school to in-person instruction. The second point here is that DOH has and maintains this data. We know that they maintain data on schools because they're the ones who are providing it to the 37 districts who are self-reporting in the state. More than half now of districts have taken it upon themselves to publish information about cases in their schools every single day because the state leadership has failed to do so. But we know that they're capable of it because they published a report three days in a row that listed the number of cases in every single district in this state, which they deleted and claimed was an accident. Since then, they have refused to release any statewide data. But from the districts that are reporting the DOH data, we already know that there are more than 2,000 cases in schools. Schools only opened up three weeks ago, and there are already 2,000 confirmed cases in schools. And that's only half the districts reporting in the state and the three largest districts just opening today. When DOH published its accidental report, there were only 200 confirmed cases in schools. And that was on the 21st. We are now more than 10 times that with half the counties reporting. And one of the biggest problems that we know right now is, is that we are unable to see which types of policies, which types of protocols are effective because we have no data to study what's going on in schools. There may be methods that are far more successful than others, but if we do not have standardized data across the state, then we are unable to look at that on a scientific and analytical level and say, these schools are very similar and we saw very few cases in one, but a lot in the other. So what was different between the two? And how can we take what that school did right and implement it in other places? Unless every school district has data, we cannot do that. We are crippled by it. And Florida is one of now only a few states in the entire Southeast that is not reporting this information. This is unacceptable. It should not come down to a scientist with a group of nonprofits to track this information across the entire state. It should not come down to individuals to be responsible for all of the science that is coming out of that data. This is state leadership's failure. And I am very concerned that the rapid increase in cases in schools and the recent deaths of teachers is being overshadowed by this unscientific message that's being pushed now that this is only a threat to the elderly and the sickly. First is if those people don't count and as if their deaths are somehow 
less worse than somebody who's young and or healthy. That is discounting people like that is unacceptable, but it's also untrue. We don't know exactly how this will play out with students because we've had schools closed for six months. Unless we have good data, we cannot understand how this plays out. And there are going to be success stories and we need to find those success stories because if we don't, we will only ever know of where we're failing and that does nothing to help us improve. State Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez was also part of the covered meeting. He's one of the most outspoken critics of the state's failed unemployment compensation system and says it's never even been fixed. We've had a series of crises about public health information uh, and an alarming attitude toward public records from DeSantis. Um, and I think when we when we turn from public health to the economic climate and we talk about uh, where out of work Floridians are still stuck, uh, the DeSantis administration has still not prioritized out of work Floridians and small businesses as well. Uh, the governor has not used executive authority to fix uh, the system. And uh, Senate President and, and the Speaker of the House refused to call us back as a legislature to uh, fix the unemployment system. Uh, it seems that, that when it comes to the, the data reporting, one of the driving uh, forces is to report statistics of who has been paid, quote, at least some payment. But when that's the metric, it, it masks those uh, thousands who are missing months of benefits missing federal payments, unable to backdate their claims as they were supposed to be able to do, unable to appeal, unable to redetermine their benefits to the correct amount, constituents who are locked out, others who are in a veritable black hole with call centers freezing them out. So it masks the, the millions that are left on the table in DC, millions of dollars we could be drawing down or could have drawn down, but because of the uh, lack of political will and the ineptitude in Tallahassee, you know, the, the, those funds are staying in D.C. Some other state is going to be providing that to out-of-work constituents in their state. There are new problems on top of old. Is still a mess six months into this crisis. The state health department reported 21 more fatalities from COVID-19 Monday. The death toll has reached 13,480. They also reported almost 1,700 new infections. That increases Florida's running total to 685,439. Next up on the Sunrise Soapbox, Florida's First Lady talks about the mental health of kids during the COVID crisis. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Predict It is like the stock market for all things politics. Instead of trading stock in companies, you're investing money into your opinions on everything from election results to how many times President Trump will tweet this week. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Our podcast listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Try it today. Welcome back to Sunrise. Florida's First Lady holds a roundtable discussion with school superintendents to talk about mental health issues they're dealing with since the reopening of public schools. Casey DeSantis also announced the state would spend $2 million in 18 of the smaller counties to set up internet portals where kids can talk with a mental health professional online. While the virus is important, we cannot turn a blind eye nor ignore the problems facing our children, whether directly, indirectly, or not related to the virus at all. Uh, we knew mental wellness was something that we needed to prioritize before the pandemic. This has just made it even more important. And we need to have the conversation about 
ramifications and implications of the mitigation related to coronavirus. The toll of isolation, what that means for someone who is depressed, what it means for someone to be in front of a computer screen for a long time, what it means when they're on that computer and they're looking at social media more, the social distancing, the lack of physical touch. There are studies out there that show physical touch, touch reduces depression, anxiety, and stress. There's even studies out there that says it can help support a healthy uh, immune system, increases serotonin and dopamine into the brain. When we look at the masks, there are studies that show uh, that there uh, sometimes is an increased sense of isolation, or it denies facial expression, which is an essential part of communication, or prevents seeing and receiving a smile, which, again, can release serotonin and dopamine into the brain. So we just need to have a robust conversation and not be afraid to talk about uh, how our kids are doing in school. So that's why we're doubling down with our Hope for Healing initiative uh, and for many of you who might not know what the Hope for Healing initiative is, it's a collaboration uh, of state agencies, like we see with the Department of Education and ACA, DCF, DOH. How can we work with best practices to get measurable outcomes for the best interests of our children? Uh, so with the Hope for Healing prior to the end, uh, pandemic, looking at mental health and how we can support our youth, we found that it was really not a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, because if you're investing in just one component of mental health, when children might not be invested in that or they might want, not want to seek care in that fashion, well, then you're not going to make uh, any meaningful difference. Some kids really wanted to uh, confide in their peers. So how do we address that? If they want to talk to their teachers or their faculty uh, or if they want to talk to a coach or a mentor, how can we support that? Uh, there's also barriers as it pertains to parents. Sometimes kids want to reach out to their parents, but they're fearful in doing so. And how do we have that conversation? And how do we support parents to be able to show them here are some warning signs and symptoms you should be on the lookout for. And if you see that, then what can you do? Uh, also, some kids want to look to social media. A lot of kids are on um, Twitter and, and various things like that. So how do we engage students that way? Mental health counselors is another one. They want to be able to address somebody in the school uh, setting, which is why the governor invested another $25 million in addition to the $75 million that was originally invested for $100 million for mental health in the schools. Uh, and then there is a stigma associated with it. And some don't want to seek help within the schools. They don't want to see a mental health counselor because they're fearful that their peers will see them. Uh, and they, they, it's uncomfortable for them. So one of the things that uh, this pandemic has brought about is a use for telemental health or telehealth or FaceTime to be able to talk to somebody uh, away from the school setting uh, to be able to get uh, the help that they need. We've seen a 3,000% increase in telehealth statewide uh, and this is something that we saw back in June, I think 2019, uh, post-Hurricane Michael. We went to the panhandle. We identified that there were some rural counties who had been impacted by the hurricane that had a housing shortage. They didn't have enough providers in the area. So we went into six counties and provided 63 telehealth portals in those school settings so that the students and even I hear some parents are able to utilize those services. Um, so what we want to do is, is extrapolate this one step further, and so I'm excited today to announce to 18 of the rural counties across the state of Florida, we will be issuing $2 million to those rural districts to help students their increase 
access to tele and mental health services because at the end of the day, we're all about helping Floridians. And if we can help children, if we can do a lot of preventative work, if we can help them, it will help the state in the long run because not only will they be happy and healthy and productive, and that's what we want, but also it just makes Florida an even better place to live. Congrats going out to Angie Nixon of Jacksonville, who's been elected to the Florida House of Representatives without actually having to win another election. Nixon defeated two-term incumbent Kim Daniels in the Democratic primary back in August. There is no Republican in the race. In fact, the GOP supported Daniels. Now, under normal circumstances, that would have been the end of it. But there was an independent who filed for the race as a write-in candidate. That candidate has now withdrawn from the race, so Nixon is officially unopposed in November. Today's calendar of events begins at 9 as the governor and cabinet meet in the Capitol. The Office of Insurance Regulation holds an online hearing at 9 about a plan by First Community Insurance to raise homeowner rates. The Southwest Florida Water Management District meets at 3, followed by a public hearing on the budget at 5. The Florida Talent Development Council meets at 3. The Department of Agriculture Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee meets by conference call at 4. The St. John's River Water Management District holds an online public hearing at 5.05 on their new budget. And at 5.15, the South Florida Water Management District holds a public hearing on their new budget. Finally today, a Florida woman who works at a U.S. military vacation lodge in Germany faces up to 10 years in prison for going on a bar crawl and spreading COVID-19. 26-year-old Yasmin Adley developed symptoms after vacationing in Greece and was tested when she returned to her home in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, where she works at the Edelweiss Lodge and Resort. Instead of following orders and quarantining herself after the test, prosecutors say she partied and hit the bars for several nights, infecting at least 26 people and exposing 700 more to the virus. In true Florida woman fashion, one of her jobs before she was infected was setting up a conference at the Hotel for U.S. Military Brass about preventing the spread of COVID-19. Two things I can tell you about this story based on my three years of living in Bavaria. Number one, the Edelweiss Lodge is a beautiful place. If you get the chance, please visit. Number two, do not screw around with the German authorities. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.